Yeah. But everybody says work smarter, not harder. <laughs> yeah, those are lazy scrubs. <laughs> yeah. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 230 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Pleasant Grove, Utah. Amy Knight. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Joe Eames. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the past. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, by my calculations, this should come out right around Angular Remote Conf. We are also doing React Remote Conf, so if you want to check that out, that's going to be in October. And Jameson also has something he wants to share, and then we'll get into the episode and introduce our guest. I totally do. This is very self-serving, tooting my own horn. I have struck out on my own as an independent consultant, and I am looking for clients to help build front-end and back-end applications or build great teams. Uh, and I would love to talk to you if you are interested. If you like the words I say on this podcast and you think that means I can write code well <laughs> for some reason, then, uh, yeah, I, I, I like building great applications, and I would love to hear from you. The best way is probably just to DM me on Twitter, at Jergason, J-E-R-G-A-S-O-N. Awesome. Now, what if I just need a middle end, not back or front end? Can you help with that? Yeah, I, I know <laughs> I know a person that does that. <laughs> He's hyper-specialized. The person front is back me. Only. Yeah, that's oh. true. What, hey, what is it okay is? if I chime in and say that Jameson is awesome and everybody should hire him? If you're listening to this and you don't immediately offer Jameson a job, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow that. Just going to say it right out. I'll just going to say pass. it flat out. Thank Jameson you, is awesome. <laughs> Jameson is cool when he's part of your team. Uh, all, all right, tr all true. Not not a hyperbole among it. All right, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Azat Mardan. I hope I said that right. Hello, hello. You yes, did it right. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, sure. Where should I start? Just just a brief introduction. Yeah, first. Birth would be good. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a technology fellow at Capital One. That's a, a bank and a credit card company, financial company. And uh, I'm also a JavaScript and Node.js expert. I've published and wrote 12 books on JavaScript. Number 13 is coming soon. I also have a few online courses as well as in-person uh, courses which I'm doing in San Francisco, New York City, and other major cities. So um, that's, that's the short version. Very cool. We brought you on today to talk about JavaScript at Capital One. And I think you've given a talk on that. So I'm just going to kind of let you dictate where we start, and then we'll start asking questions and stuff from there. Yes, absolutely. So... Uh, Back in December at Node Interactive, uh, which was the first time they did this conference, it's like a full-blown uh, Node.js conference. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, the new, new Node Interactive would be in uh, September and October this year. So I gave I gave the talk on uh, Node.js at Capital One, and I received really good feedback from people in uh, similar industries, financial industries, and also healthcare, government industries. So. Uh, things are a little bit different when you work in uh, those industries because they tend to be uh, heavily regulated. And um, just historically, uh, uh, those regulations, they're not really great at embracing the innovation and embracing open source. Uh, but luckily at Capital One, things are uh, uh, way, way better than the benchmark uh, in the industry, at least uh, in my opinion. And uh, can you give us like the 10 second summary of what Capital One is? I've actually, I've heard the name a ton and I couldn't tell you what they actually do. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, where, where do you live? What is your... Uh, I live in Utah in the United States. Yes, okay. So that's explained. So but mostly... The big question for Jameson, right, is what's in your wallet? What's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it's, 
what, what's in your garage, what's in your uh, parked driveway. Yeah, so basically, it's, uh, we have retail presence, uh, the banking branches on the East Coast, New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, those, uh, those major cities. And uh, for other cities and states, uh, we do online banking and online credit cards offering. So Capital One started at the, actually at the big data startup uh, about 25 years ago. And um, I, I, a lot of people still consider it as a startup because if you think about other major financial institutions like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo, they existed for like 100 years. And uh, Capital One is just um, 20 years since the uh, IPO. So we do credit cards, we do home loans, we do auto loans, we do uh, investing, like uh, buying stocks and shares. And uh, we also do a lot of other uh, cool stuff like uh, budgeting apps and uh, other uh, apps to check your credit score, for example, even if you don't uh, have a credit card account with us. Cool. Yeah. In your talk, you mentioned that you have a lot of Java in your code as well as Node, and you also talked about like how many developers are actually working on that since you said kind of think of it as a startup. So how many developers currently are actually using Node and how much of your stack is actually Node? I don't have a, uh, exact numbers. Uh, this is uh, because we have a lot of teams, a lot of engineers, and uh, uh, some of them, they have a lot of freedom to pick uh, the frameworks, the libraries, the languages. For example, at Capital One Labs, so, uh, they are building prototypes and they're pretty much free to pick any technology available. Maybe they're using React Native or uh, Kotlin or Elm or Elixir, some of those uh, cutting-edge technologies. So unfortunately, I don't have a precise number, but uh, my anecdotal experience from talking with other teams. And uh, I think um, the trend is uh, increasing, especially this year. More and more teams, they're shifting from uh, having uh, like two or three teams working together. So you would have your backend Java people. Uh, usually it would be three to eight people on a backend team. And then they would work with Angular 1 front-end team. Uh, we're a huge Angular 1 shop. Uh, pretty much all of the application by default we use Angular 1 and now we're starting to use Angular 2. So you would see two or three teams working together and uh, typically what that introduce uh, a lot of overhead in communication. So you need more meetings, you need more hands-off. Uh, when the backend code is done, they hand it off to the front-end team and vice versa if the front-end team as a new feature they implement, they need to ask the backend team. So I've worked on two projects so far at Capital One as an architect, and uh, um, I was uh, involved in those projects from like from being in the trenches. So I saw that from uh, with my own eyes that by creating generalist teams, by basically using more and more Node.js and JavaScript uh, and we still have to use Java because that's what our APIs are built on top. But by basically reducing the team's uh, sizes, we, we can move way, way faster. And uh, by doing that, we get a better uh, time to market, which gives us a more competitive advantage. Can I make a quick detour and talk about the front end for a minute? Yes. So... You have a lot of Angular 1, and I remember when I um, met you at Nation.js, you had talked about that. And so you are actually already migrating to Angular 2. Is any of that in production? I'd really be curious just to kind of like hear um, your thoughts on like the teams who made that decision to go that route rather than using React, because it just seems like so many people are going that direction now. Um, and what the process has been like if you've... Um, started to just like build things uh, greenfield or if you're actually like migrating things? Yes, absolutely. So uh, thank you for speaking at Nation.js. We hosted it at our uh, um, McLean office in Capital One. And uh, the current state at um, uh, as far as the Angular 1 switching to Angular 2, actually we use both in production right now. We have Angular 2 and we have React as well. So Level Money, their web app is is built on top of React, 
And then uh, the poster child example of transitioning from Angular 1 and uh, Java stack into more modern Node.js and Angular 2 stack would be our uh, main website, capital1.com. So right now, if you go to www.capital1.com, the web pages would probably, so we're doing A-B testing, right? We're not releasing everything at, at the same time, but uh, some of those requests, they would be served by Angular 2 or from Angular 2 code and um, TypeScript. Our, our brilliant team here on the West Coast, are, uh, we also have some members on the East Coast, but mostly uh, the, the Angular 2 revolution started here on the, in the West Coast team. So I think you mentioned in your talk, too, that there's like a, a lot of, and, and you talked about it, too, when we first started the call, but just kind of like the process you have to go through for approving things. So has that been really difficult with things that are so like Angular 2 is like not even officially released yet. So how do you go about that? So we have uh, an open source office and uh, as with being in the financial industry, as I mentioned, uh, you have to go through certain regulations. So uh, open source modules and open source libraries, which you uh, use internally for uh, some tooling, for some internal projects at Capital One, they, are, they don't require pretty much any approvals. So you can use that. For something uh, production-facing, customer-facing, there's a certain process. Uh, but we have uh, people working on also streamlining that process as well. And just based on the success of CapitalOne.com and a few other uh, teams, uh, it, it looks like the process is pretty much straightforward. So I have, a, I guess, a broader question about that, which is um, in my head, all those regulations are to attempt to provide stability and safety and protection. And they, they kind of get a bad rap of like, oh, they slow everything down and, and make it hard to do our jobs. But but generally, I feel like they come from a, a desire to make something better. But they definitely have an effect on it, – it's this trade-off, right, where you have to balance stability and safety and also kind of moving a gigantic organization. You can't just flip a switch and say, okay, we're on Angular 2 for everything, for every developer now. How, how do you balance um, – stability and kind of st security in a large organization with keeping up with new things and making sure you're not falling behind technically. Yes, absolutely, Jameson. So all those regulations, I mean, uh, they're there for a reason, right? So uh, this industry is like healthcare and government and uh, financial. The, um, uh, they're um, basically it's like they're they're very important uh, in terms of like uh, the government tries to protect the consumers from some uh, bad actors on the market so that's why those regulations exist and um, i would say the majority of them there they totally make sense for example like uh, when it comes to open source like don't publish your uh, passwords and uh, api keys into the open source repository, right? So that totally makes sense. We shouldn't do that. And then uh, obviously in the cases when uh, they don't make sense or they're not as uh, forward thinking as uh, we wish, for example, when uh, you're picking between AGPL and GPL licenses, right, for your open source project. So in those cases, uh, it's basically education. So, uh, and that's part of my role also to educate engineers as well. It's like, okay, uh, what licenses mean, how, uh, what is the best approach to open source your library, et cetera. I mean, those are all kind of tactical things, though. What about more strategic things? Do you, do you say like, these are experimental teams that get to play with new stuff and they'll kind of go out ahead and check out the, the ground and see if it's safe and then they come back and make recommendations or is it come from the top down and like some CTO or VP says like, I heard Angular was good, do, do that Angular thing. Like how, how, do, you, how do you keep up technically, um, especially when there's all this inertia uh, kind of encouraging you not to change things? Both, both regulations and just large enterprise. Yes, yes, absolutely. So basically it's uh, about uh, being a technology company, about the culture. So uh, we're lucky at Capital One that uh, we have 
to both things. Basically, we have the uh, will to change from the, coming from the leadership. We still have our uh, founder as the CEO, and uh, uh, initially that uh, the, the new direction came from the top. So they realized that we need to uh, start changing, and uh, uh, basically uh, we moved to public cloud. Uh, I think one of the few financial institutions that use public cloud. We don't uh, use uh, data centers as much as we used to. Uh, and then uh, we start embracing open source more and more. And now you also see the approach from bottom up, which are uh, labs that do a lot of prototyping, level money, that use uh, pretty much all the cutting edge technologies. So they go and build something. And uh, they prove uh, that uh, it's better or it, maybe it's not better for some cases than the current status quo. And then uh, we start the conversations uh, with our architects. So uh, maybe we should adopt it on a larger scale. Cool. That makes sense. Yeah. So I see it as, I see it as a both. And uh, also uh, it takes time to change the culture, in, especially in a big company. Not... not um, there are very few successes when a large company's transformation succeeded. Also, with just the sheer number of engineers, right now we have 5,000 engineers. We, I think we have open uh, position for 1,000 or 2,000 more engineers. So, so <laughs> Holy cow. Yes, and uh, most people don't realize that Capital One, it's not just a bank. We are a digital bank. We're a technology company that focuses on financial services, but uh, we're not just a bank. So does one trump the other then? I mean, does the banking trump the technology, or does the technology ever get to say, we're not going to bank that way because technologically it doesn't make sense? Well, historically, it used to be... Uh, where you would have product owners or product managers and they would uh, outsource the development. And then the, whatever consultancy they would use, uh, uh, those people would come back in six or 12 months and they would say, hey, this is what we built, uh, see if it's what you needed. And most of the time the market would already move or there would be some discrepancies between the initial design and uh, what's being built, right? And now uh, we're using more agile, so basically the technical people, they have the say in the product. We have uh, customer labs, we do a lot of customer development. So, so sometimes it's, it feels like being in a startup, especially if you visit our San Francisco office or the uh, office in Virginia, in McLean, Virginia. It's, uh, it's like any other startup like Facebook or Google uh, headquarters. They have like a bunch of games and uh, free drinks and snacks. But obviously, those all are like the shallow, the visual things, but uh, the cultural shift is also happening. I have a technical question. So with um, banking, obviously, Floating point is not the greatest. You don't want people's fractions of dollars to get messed up. Um, and you uh, probably deal with more currencies than just U.S. dollar. Does any of do you have like a, a library for managing currency that you've created or that you prefer to use, or how do you handle those types of issues that are present in JavaScript? Yes, in JavaScript there is just one type number, and uh, it's 64-bit, uh, right? So it has the length limitation. There, there are a few libraries that support long numbers. I don't know exactly what people are using because most of the times uh, our use case is we get the data from the Java APIs. And then we use Node.js as a middle layer. We call it orchestration layer. Some people call it API gateway, uh, basically to massage that data. So that's where those uh, libraries could come in handy. And then that orchestration layer talks with uh, Angular or React front end. Okay. Another just way out there question. Everybody loves things like Venmo, where you can transfer money fast and easy. And we're starting to see 
integrations with payment services where it's it's like Facebook or or um, Android or iOS authorization where it's like this wants to do this with that. Um, do you see that hitting the the major banking industry anytime soon? Or are we still a ways away from that kind of convenience? Uh, yeah, so Venmo, it's a peer-to-peer money transfer, right? Without uh, the credit card fees. They yeah, and, and now it works in apps as well. So you can actually, on your iPhone, you can make app purchases through it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's totally cool. And the Facebook, they also have payments. And Gmail, you can uh, make payments. Uh, PayPal is obviously becoming more and more popular every, every week, every month. Uh, so... My personal opinion is that peer-to-peer payments, they're not that complex. A lot of companies doubled in it. A lot of companies tried that to some success. But what is tricky is to uh, to make merchants also accept your payments. So if Venmo or PayPal can do it, um, for example, if I have PayPal, if I go to a gas station, uh, I probably cannot buy anything with that, right? So because their terminal is not supporting. But if I have a credit card or a debit card, so Visa or MasterCard infrastructure, uh, that would be possible. So PayPal and a lot of those new fintech startups like Simple and um, some of the other ones, so they are trying to kind of bridge that gap by using the old technology, by using credit cards and uh, debit cards. So now the interesting thing would happen with uh, more and more wider adoption of the um, touchless payments, NFCs, as people start having more smartphones which support it and merchants starts to uh, also uh, use new terminals which supports uh, touchless payments. So so that could be a game changer. And uh, uh, we'll see. It's, it's very interesting. I think um, financial services and the payments, they're very ripe for disruption. And what is unique about Capital One, uh, so we we kind of in both worlds. So we are taking the best from the fintech, but we're also a traditional bank. So we have uh, infrastructure. Uh, we can use, we can issue a Visa or MasterCard and uh, do other things that the fintech startup, they have to partner with an existing bank in order to to, to be able to do that. One thing that I keep hearing people talk about with these digital currencies, so we're talking about uh, Bitcoin and I've heard of a couple of others. Can't think of their names off the top of my head. But with those digital currencies, I keep hearing people talk about going to a cashless society. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how prepared are banks in general for something like that? Or, or do you think it's just kind of a non-starter just from the banking standpoint? Yeah, there was an article, uh, a reporter, a journalist, he tried to go cashless uh, for like a year or something like that. He had to memorize his credit card number. Well, cashless could mean two things. So that reporter, he was avoiding credit cards as well. So just going with his um, iPhone or Android, whatever he had. Uh, but it could also mean just not using the paper manual, right? So... In terms of not using paper money, I'm pretty much cashless just personally. I try to pay with credit cards and debit cards everywhere. But in terms of like just not using the plastic as well, yeah, we might we might see, again, it depends on the merchants. Uh, and uh, historically, it's just the habits and uh, the, the existing infrastructure. So it takes uh, it takes time to basically change that. Also, if like uh, the, the chips right now that uh, basically uh, all Europe and Canada, they had those uh, EV, EV chips, but uh, in the U.S. they weren't uh, popular. So now we are seeing that technology being implemented. So, and... Uh, some people are not happy because it takes actually longer time to pay with the chip by using the pin code of the chip. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are a lot of kinks, and uh, whoever can solve those problems, uh, I mean, they, they, would be, they would be ahead of the pack. In terms of the bitcoins and uh, the kind of cryptocurrency, uh, just yesterday I met a 
BizDev from uh, Coin, Coinbase, which is like an exchange for Bitcoins. And uh, we, we had a nice conversation. Uh, I, th I think just personally, again, I'm not in saying as, as a company, it's not an official opinion, but I think of just uh, that there would be some synergy between like official money and some institution issuing those money, like a Federal Reserve and uh, the cryptocurrencies. So uh, Capital One invested, uh, we have a venture, our uh, Capital One Ventures invested in uh, Coin, which is a blockchain technology. And if you think about it, the blockchain, it doesn't have to be all about money. It could replace social security. Because you know, right now, if I publish my social security online, that's it, basically the game over. Um, I I could be compromised, right? That's it's very very hard to to prevent that. But if I have uh, my identity similar to social security number as a crypto kind of a token, then basically I can replay that because it works similarly to like having a public and private keys. So the applications are very very interesting besides just uh, financial services and financial industry. So I want to kind of take us a little bit back towards talking about JavaScript specifically. You, you mentioned a little bit about the introduction of JavaScript into what sounds like was mostly a Java stack before. Can you talk a little bit more about how that transition worked? Were there new teams formed? Was it the same people writing Java that started writing JavaScript? Um, sounds like it's kind of a layer in between the two also. Yeah, sure. So, Or between the back end and front end, that's what I meant by the two. Yeah, so the middle layer. So JavaScript is everywhere, right? So the first and the most important place is the browser. So to build a single page application. So that's why Angular 1 was picked because it's... Uh, it's very nice for building those applications, and it's very good for prototyping. Uh, our backend, mostly Java, but then you have spots here and there, for example, like Level Money or some uh, teams in the labs that might use something else. But in most of the cases, the backend is Java, and then that was like circa five years ago, right? Five, three to five years ago. And uh, developers were... Uh, we, we were hiring new talent that already proficient in Angular, and at the same time, we were retraining the Java developers to become also generalist developers by uh, uh, using the Angular 1 skills, by leveraging Angular 1 on the front end. And um, that, that turned out pretty well, uh, part of it because we have... Um, we invest a lot in uh, education. We have Capital One University and Tech College inside of that. Uh, we do uh, a lot of classes online and in person. We provide to all associates membership to Pluralsight, to Safari Online. And um, I think that's, that's good when uh, developers can continue their education. So, so Java developers learning Angular 1. And now uh, last year, Monsoon team joined us here on the West Coast and they were uh, mostly Node.js in Angular 1 and now they're Angular 2. So they brought a lot of talent with them, especially to the CapitalOne.com project, to the home, to the home site, which will, it was built initially in GSPs. So think about like having a monolith and um, accessing uh, APIs or databases directly from your web app, right? Uh, so now it's uh, more microservices architecture where you have Angular 2, which talks to Node.js, and then Node.js talks to uh, the legacy APIs. We have a couple Java frameworks, in-house frameworks, which we use. So uh, There are a lot of investments in Java, so it, it, it's not necessarily making sense to rewrite everything in Node.js. So um, right now, Node.js and JavaScript is used uh, mostly for new projects. Did that answer your question? Yeah, that totally did. Um, I, I have a more specific question about part of it. You mentioned that uh, single-page apps, it, it sounded like kind of became the default. And I, I feel like a lot of places, especially maybe larger enterprises, are still struggling with 
um, having large existing stacks that do a lot of server rendering of HTML, um, kind of the more traditional model. And, and some of them are still figuring out, like, does it make sense to do a single page app here? Did you kind of incrementally add apps as you built new things, uh, single page apps as you built new things? Did you rewrite existing pieces? Um, how did you kind of fit those in to the existing tech stack? So mostly for new projects. So new projects, when they are conceived at the initial step during the architecture, uh, they would pick like, okay, what front end should look like, right? And uh, Angular sure. 1, Angular 1, it's not a perfect framework, especially now we have Angular 2 and React, but I think it served a, served a good uh, role in transitioning from having those monoliths um, written in JSP, uh, and now we use JavaScript, and we transfer a lot of business logic from the back end to the front end. So you have this the browser rendering, which is snappier. You're transferring just the JSON payload instead of transferring all the, all the same headers and uh, all the same HTMLs for headers and footers. So, sure. So, yeah, so that was a great step. Also, uh, we are not like a 10-people startup, right? So we cannot chase all the new and shiny technology. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like. In JavaScript, there is a new framework coming out every hour. So uh, when you work with uh, the in, at, at such a large scale with uh, such a big number of teams, then uh, you have to pick a framework which is um, supported by uh, a great, great company like Google, or uh, in case of uh, React, is also supported by a great company, Facebook. But uh, So you have that support, but also you have a good community, you have uh, best practices, and the transition is uh, relatively smooth. Uh, so for example, if you're a Java developer transitioning to Angular, uh, yes, JavaScript has it quirks, but it's not as dramatic as transitioning to L, which is completely functional, or to uh, ClojureScript, let's say. So, so I think Angular is a great choice for uh, for bigger enterprises. And uh, example of why it was also beneficial, we have our uh, own uh, basically framework build on top of Angular 1. Think about it as Twitter bootstrap, but instead of having the Twitter bootstrap look, you would get Capital One look and feel in your applications. So kind of like a, but not really a component library, just kind of a, some kind of broader wrapper. Exactly, exactly. It's a broader wrapper. Uh, it has components, so components in Angular, it's, uh, the directive, right? So basically, sure. Uh, you would have CSS, HTML, and uh, maybe some images or fonts, and then you'd have JavaScript as well. So it's very similar to like Twitter Bootstrap having jQuery to, to add that um, interactivity. So uh, in our framework, in the Capital One framework, uh, they used Angular One and to write those directives. And uh, now it's like any hackathon or any new project, they can just uh, use Bower point to our internal GitHub and uh, boom, they got those uh, components. They got those directives. They can have a nice, nicely styled table. And um, uh, you know how uh, credit card transactions, they have dates and they have uh, uh, due dates, et cetera. So that table will automatically uh, filter those transactions accordingly to the style uh, across that we use across other uh, Capital One applications. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, having that type of inner source library, I think that's great. That uh, saves a lot of time. And basically, we have one look and feel for a lot of projects. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. 
Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Have you... Um... Have you had to kind of retrain a lot of people to develop JavaScript skill if they were great programmers already, but in a different stack or environment? Yes, that's basically my uh, part of my full-time job here. Oh, cool. One, yeah, I, I go to different offices and uh, do a three-day training. It's called Building Node.js Apps. But first day, we just focus on the JavaScript fundamentals how to uh, use prototypal inheritance, uh, what other data types, and uh, how to use this keyword, et cetera, et cetera. What do you, do you see something in, in, in people that pick it up faster, um, some, some skill or technique that they use that makes it easier for them to, to uh, kind of make that change? I think it's about uh, attitude. Uh, and also, I've been an instructor at Hacker Reactor. I've seen it over and over. Sure. Uh, that it's not necessarily the smartest person who becomes a great developer, but it's uh, the person with the most grit, the person with the most perseverance. And um, I think like 80% is, is an attitude. And then in my Capital One courses, I've uh, worked with uh, Java developers, basically Java developers transition who transition from being backend to um, being backend and also doing the frontend work to the so-called generalists or full stack developers. And uh, what they're struggling, almost all of them, they're struggling with data types. So JavaScript, there is no types, right? How do you define a function? And then basically the parameters for that function, they don't know. Um, it could be a string. It could be a number. Another thing is that um, when we're going to express and nodes, like, okay, middleware, it's like a filter in Java. And then they have some other uh, analogies that help them to basically uh, understand the JavaScript sure. world better. I, I love the quote you just said. Well, it's a quote now because I'm going to quote you about how uh, it's it's more about grit than than maybe raw intelligence. I think that's pretty powerful, and that that makes me feel better too. Because to some extent, I can't just flex my brain and make myself smarter, but I can work harder and and get better at sticking with something or figuring things out. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. but everybody says work smarter, not harder. <laughs> Yeah, those are lazy scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in some cases, the intelligence, it could be uh, a curse. Because you, I've seen a lot of smart people, they just uh, try something. And if they fail for the first time, that's it, they give up. Because they, they never develop this ability to persevere. Sure. Yeah. Well, luckily, I do not have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you think you do not have this problem? <laughs> I don't think he has that problem. Oh, I definitely do. I, I, <laughs> I'm in the way that I'm not smart enough to just expect my, me to get everything the first try. Like, of course, I need to mess up a bunch of times to figure it out. If I pick up some new product on a shelf at Best Buy or Walmart and I can't figure out how to work, I take it back or throw it away or give it to somebody else. I, I can't stand new technology. <laughs> Hence your hatred for ES6. No, that that's... Mm, um, <laughs> I won't go into that. It's not JavaScript. But that's, oh, no. What I'll, have I'll I done? I'll leave, it, I'll leave it alone. What I'll have I alone. done? <laughs> I have a great next question. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you also talked about this in your talk as well, and it's just like super interesting to me. Um, so you actually have some open source projects. I know a couple of them say coming soon, but, you know, it's one thing to like submit a pull request to, you know, Angular or React or, or even Node. It's another thing to submit a pull request to something that like Capital One is using in production. So can you talk about some of those projects that you have and what the process is if people actually wanted to contribute to them? 
Yeah, sure. It's like, uh, but before, let me share a quick story. It's like I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was scrolling my Facebook feed. And one of my acquaintances, he basically is like, oh, I'm quitting. And he named this company, which I know. And actually, I'm a customer of that company. It's uh, one of those uh, big startups, real successful startups here in San Francisco. And I was surprised, like, wow, it's like all the like VC media, like TechCrunch and uh, VentureBeat, they write about this company. Supposed to be like the dream job, right? Why he's quitting? Then I privately messaged him, and he said they wouldn't allow him to contribute to open source. I'm like, really? This is 2016. Like, I thought all companies understand how important contributing to open source and uh, how it's good for their recruiting, for their brand. Uh, companies like Twitter and Facebook, they have uh, they've invested a lot in uh, helping the open source project, but no. He said, like, that that company, I was really surprised. So um, luckily at Capital Ones, like, that's not a, even a question. Like, we encourage people to contribute to open source. And uh, it's basic, there are basically three ways. So inner sourcing, it's when you uh, publish something internally. It's basically you don't need anyone's permission. You can just share it with other teams, and that's totally fine. Uh, the second level is when you're contributing a patch to uh, some other library, like Apache Spark, for example. We have uh, uh, contributors to the core Apache Spark. So in this case, you need to have a certain number of patches, and for each patch, you submit um, a form. And once you get, like I think, five or six patches, within one year, uh, then uh, basically you can apply to be a trusted open source contributor. Once you get that uh, training and that approval to be a trusted open source contributor, you don't need to submit individual forms. Basically, you can contribute as much as you want to, to that particular project. Uh, so that's when you're contributing to uh, third party, basically projects outside. Uh, and then the third Third option, it's uh, open sourcing our own projects, right? So maybe it's an inner source project that we used and we really like. Uh, maybe it's um, some some experiment that we want to open source. In this case, uh, the process is a little bit lengthier just because we're Capital One. And I've also talked with some of the other big companies. Basically, they don't open source small projects because there's uh, there's certain legal search you need to perform, trademark search you need to perform to make sure you're not target for any lawsuits. And um, it makes sense for large projects uh, to open source them to go through that process. But for smaller projects, they, they just uh, tell people like, hey, um, I just open source it under your profile. So, uh, so it's not that unusual in the large companies to see only large projects being open source. And uh, Capital One, right now we have three big projects. One of them is Cloud Custodian. Another one is um, Higina, which is a, dev, a DevOps dashboard. Uh, both of them we use internally uh, in our both production and uh, QA and other applications and uh, setups. So, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's basically the process of uh, open sourcing. And uh, we encourage people to contribute to open source and to use open source. And internet, oh, Chuck, do you want to go? Sorry. I was just going to say, I really like that, the way that you're looking at that, because I've had clients where, you know, there was some general utility library even. I mean, it, we weren't giving away any kind of trade secret or competitive competitive advantage other than the fact that somebody else would have had to spend an hour or two writing that code and they wouldn't let us open source that. Be and technically it was their intellectual property just due to the way that the contract was written, but at the same time, you know, it would have benefited so many people and would have looked nice on their uh, public profile to have those out there. And yet, you know, they were like, well, our competitors can take this code and use it. And it's like, well, yeah, but if your competitive advantage is they have to write the code too, that's not much of a competitive advantage. <laughs> and so it's nice that you're looking at it from that direction and saying, hey, we can contribute to the community at large and make a difference. Yeah. Also, what happens when this company uh, needs to upgrade the versions? 
they have to pay someone, right? Yeah. If it's open source, there are chances that the community would support that. It would have more eyes on the code. It would be more secure. It would be better maintained. Yeah, especially if it's something that is that generally useful. Yeah, if it's useful, if it's popular, it, the quality is just so much better for open source. That's why we use it, right? Yep. What were you going to say, Amy? Sorry. Oh, I mean, you pretty much covered it. I was just going to add, like, you know, it's kind of it's complicated enough, I feel like, at most places to convince, you know, upper-level management to, you know, open-source things. So for, like, a company as big as Capital One to do something like that is impressive. Yeah, the, the battle is over. The battle is over, folks, the open-source. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just whoever is against open source, they are just uh, like the relics of the past. They would, they would be outcompeted. I guess I have another question. This is, um, you know, completely unrelated, but um, I always like to try to ask like newer developer questions. So do you have, I feel like I talked to you about this um, when I was in Virginia, but do you have, have you ever hired someone like out of a boot camp? I'm assuming you definitely hire like junior developers with traditional training, but um, what is the onboarding process like for them? Would you say it's comparable to a regular job or is it, or are there special things that you need to know about since you're working in, you know, a higher risk environment? Oh yes, that's uh, that's a great question. And uh, you, Amy, you finished uh, Dev Bootcamp, right? Uh, I went to one in Nashville called Nashville Software School. So yeah. similar, similar. Yeah, this topic is dear to my heart. I was a <laughs> instructor at uh, Hack Reactor here in San Francisco. So historically, historically, Capital One was, uh, I think, pretty much always hiring uh, college grads. So there is this program, it's called TDP, Technical uh, Development Program, where uh, they take college grads and basically they know very little about uh, actual development, right? Most of them. And uh, they go on a two-year rotation. I think it was two years, I think it's one year right now. So where they, they work on, in one team for a certain number of months, I think it's six months, and then they move to another team, maybe even in a different city. So they can move from Virginia to SF, back to Virginia or Dallas. And uh, they, they get to experience real software engineering. And uh, they also have uh, experience from different, uh, different line of businesses, different departments, different teams. So I think that, that's a really good program. But it's not this program is not covering someone who is uh, transitioning um, into a software engineering uh, as a, like a career change. So TDP, they're just for college grads. And recently, recently, I mean, a couple of years, one or two years, um, there have been a partnership with uh, Udacity. So Udacity, if someone doesn't know, it's a great, great, uh, massive open online courses platform where it's very affordable to take uh, courses from Ivy League universities and Stanford and et cetera, MIT. So great quality education, very affordable. But what Udacity is all already doing, also doing in addition to those MOOCs, massive open online courses, they're providing uh, kind of on-the-job training. It's called nano degrees, where people can get and transition into a career of, let's say, a front-end engineer or big data analyst from being, uh, let's say, a, a phone uh, support, phone, uh, phone representative on the support. And uh, I actually talked with one of the uh, people, one of uh, one person who, who he was a phone representative at Capital One, but he did that nano degree and then and now he joined uh, Capital One as a front-end engineer which I think was fantastic. Uh, also, we are uh, working on the technical onboarding. So technical onboarding would be beneficial for experienced engineers, someone who has uh, been in software engineering for three, four, five years already, but new to Capital One. So we want to uh, get them started and show them uh, how to uh, engineer, how to do the engineering at Capital One. 
uh, what uh, slang do we use, uh, what uh, names do we use for our frameworks and technologies internally, how, how you can find information, how you can, how you can, how you do agile and scrum here at Capital One, how you do uh, test-driven development. So uh, those are very company-specific and um, I think Facebook has a similar bootcamp where people go through eight-week uh, bootcamp, basically, even if they're non-technical uh, uh, employees. So they have to go through that bootcamp and maybe build a couple of apps. And then at the end of that bootcamp, uh, a person, a new hire, uh, they decide what, which team to join because they uh, got a taste of uh, working in different teams. So. To, uh, to basically summarize uh, the answer, uh, I think in technology, we should never stop learning and learn like great platforms like Pluralsight and uh, Udacity, uh, which can uh, make that learning more effective. And uh, within Capital One, we also have Capital One University, which uh, kind of combines the online learning and in-person training to help existing engineers and uh, the new hires as well. Oh, you also asked about, uh, did we hire? So the Monsoon team here in Auckland on the West Coast, they hired a lot of Hack Reactor graduates uh, just because I know them personally. Some of them I knew before joining Capital One. Others we hired after. Um, Recently, I helped uh, to bring one person. I recruited one person from, um, I think it was Dev Bootcamp or Hack Reactor. So it was it was a local uh, bootcamp. And uh, yeah, I talked with her. She she seems to be happy. It has been two or three weeks uh, since uh, since she started. But again, there is there is a little bit of a gap in terms of uh, when you join the first day, basically. Uh, how do I make my proxy work? How do I uh, search information on the internet? How do I set up my uh, GitHub profile, internal GitHub profile, right? So uh, there, there are certain things we are still working on, making them better. Sounds good. Yes, it's all about learning. Never stop, never stop learning. That, that's a good thing about technology, right? You never can be bored. What do you think about TypeScript and uh, non-TypeScript, those, those things? Should we talk about them? Yeah, go ahead. I know that we've talked about it. Joe and I have some on Adventures in Angular. Um, I'm fairly pro TypeScript. Uh, I think Joe likes TypeScript. But uh, yeah, what's, what's your take? I personally haven't built any production apps on TypeScript. So I would be biased and coming from uh, more like a Node.js environment. You don't really um, get that many benefits from TypeScript, at least in my opinion. But I totally see the point of having that uh, static checking, having those uh, IDE support where you have uh, autocomplete coming from the types. And especially it's like uh, for enterprise, right? Uh, once your application starts to become larger and larger, you have more and more people working. So how do you scale in terms of the uh, team size? I think I think the TypeScript could be an answer to that problem. So for prototyping, I would still just personally prefer to use uh, to have to not have the prototype, to not have the the types. Because it's it, for me, it's more expressive. It's, it's just faster. But then once uh, you kind of finish prototyping, you you more or less know how your structure should look like. Then you can start introducing um, the types and uh, make it more structural, make it more rigid and robust. And I think TypeScript it's, uh, it supports regular JavaScript, right? So you can write in regular JavaScript and then gradually piece by piece shift to TypeScript. All right. Um, well, we're getting to that point where we need to start looking at picks. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that we need to hit before we go to picks? What are the picks? So picks are things that you like, things that uh, make your life better. People have picked TV shows, music, technology tools, anything like that. 
Uh, we'll have the panel go first, and you can kind of get an idea. Okay. Um, AJ, do you want to go first? Yeah. I will pick. There's a movie out right now called Nerve, and I think the concept of it is kind of cool, particularly because I'm, you know, in the personal server business and, and within the first 10 minutes of the movie, they explain that the reason that the game can't be shut down is that everybody who installs the software becomes their own server. And so it just completely democratizes the internet. And of course there's a very negative spin on what that democratization means through the plot of the movie. But, um, like conceptually, I think the idea of it is really cool. And so, and also I, I love any movie that's got some sort of artistic eight bit kind of thing going on. And, and they have a little bit of that in there where it's um, uh, just the cinematography has, has a couple of, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but, but I, I like stuff where it meshes real computery grungy things with, with, more awesome nerd things, and that movie does that well. So, try to chop those words into something meaningful. Um, and I also want to pick the Brave browser. I haven't used it all that much, but I think that it's a really cool concept. And I mean, I'm a sucker just like everyone else. I want to learn about the one weird trick that. Uh, vegans hate that's going to reduce the amount of plumbing needed in your home or whatever. Um, but, but I hate it when I visit some article and then I can't, I mean, I've got 16 gigs of Ram and it's using like eight of them to load the page because of all the ads. So the idea of a browser that just like doesn't necessarily remove all of the ads, it's up to your option, but that replaces ads with ads that load faster and that are higher quality ads, I think is actually really cool. And I, I wish more websites would opt into um, using the, the Brave ad system with or without the Brave browser. All right, Joe, what are your picks? All right, so um, I'm going to pick a TV show, a Netflix show, Stranger Things have been watched a few episodes of it so far, and it is absolutely, completely engrossing, super fun to watch been just loved watching what I could and wanted to binge all night long and watch it all night long. But of course I had to go to sleep, which really, really harshed on my mellow. So I'm going to pick sleep, you strangers. Win. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so if you Netflix, had more grit, Joe, you would have stepped I through. did. Yes. That's my problem. Not enough grit. Too that's much the, intelligence. That's the one problem I've had my whole life. <laughs> I thought it was all the brain damage, but it wasn't it. It was grit. That was my problem. <laughs> I think the brain damage put some grit like in your brain, and it's kind of gumming there you it go. up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe I have too much grit then. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Stranger Things, awesome. Love the show. And then uh, just one other thing that I'm going to be doing in the beginning of October, which I'm totally stoked for John Papa and Dan Wallin are going to be giving an angular two class for two days in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. And they asked me to help them out. I'm super excited to be involved with two such great teachers. I really, really like those guys. So I'm going to be helping them out with their angular two class uh, in Florida. And if you would like tickets, uh, you can check out uh, fortlauderdale.ng-learn.com. It'll be in the show notes, but that's like ftlauderdale.ng-learn.com. And if you use the code JSJ, it'll get you a couple hundred dollars off of your ticket. So that's early October uh, the 6th and 7th, I think, in Fort Lauderdale. Super excited. It's a cool hotel right on the beach. It'll be have a lot of fun. So there you go. Those are my picks. Awesome. Amy, what are your picks? I have two. So the first one is it's a post on the Ellis Depart blog, and it's called Strategies for Healthier Dev. Um, it's just a short post, but I like to be pretty well-rounded. So I liked a lot of the advice it has in here. It just talks about um, kind of like uh, tools out there to like dim your screen, exercising, eating well, all that good stuff. Uh, anyways, and then on Health Kick Note, I wanted to pick some new kombucha that I tried. I usually get this like green stuff that actually has algae in it, but um, 
it was like GT's kombucha, but the Whole Foods that I usually go to for that was out of it. So I was stuck and had to try something new. And so I always try to get like the kombucha that's, I don't know, I try try to pick like weird flavors that are going to be really healthy. And so I tried the beet flavor because I thought that that would be a uh, pretty healthy and I was a little bit scared to try it because I thought it might be disgusting but it was actually pretty good um but this brand is called health aid so I'll put a link for the blog post and the new kombucha in the show notes that's it for me oh that's that's my favorite brand (laughs) okay good I'm not alone I love it they actually have it looks like they have some like really interesting ones there's a like a cayenne one I don't know if I would try Try that try the rose one that's that's a really good one try the which one from roses Okay, I'll check it out. Nice. Jameson, what are your picks? It's It's been too long since I've heard the words kombucha come out of Amy's mouth, so I'm glad. <laughs> glad I know we're the world just the got staples. brighter. Yeah. <laughs> I have three picks. I have two podcasts and an article. Well, a paper, I guess. Uh, the first podcast is called The Adventure Zone, and it is a uh, podcast where a group of of brothers and their dad go through and uh, a D and D playthrough. I don't really play Dungeons and Dragons. I don't really do role playing, uh, but they're super entertaining to listen to, and it's 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 pretty good. Um, I recently read this old article from uh, Dykstra um, called "On the Cruelty of Really Teaching Computer Science," which is just like. Dykstra in in a in a title, <laughs> uh, he's this kind of old, grumpy, famous computer scientist uh, who has done a ton to advance computer science in general, and is uh, incredibly. I, I describe him as as very fixed in his beliefs and willing to dish out tasty burns to people who disagree with him. Uh, but it's it's an interesting read uh, from from decades ago on what he saw as the future of computer science education and all of the problems with it. And some of the points I agree with and some of them uh, I don't, but it's, it was a pretty good read and it's not super technical. It's not like equations and and math and things like that. Um, And my last pick is the freelancers show. So as I've gotten started um, trying to strike out on my own and kind of build up a a software shop, um, Chuck does another podcast called the freelancers show and it is chock full of useful business information, uh, geared towards people in the programming space. I've looked a little bit for kind of like business and productivity podcasts, and that is a wasteland. Uh, (laughs) It's full of just like disgusting, cheesy self-promotion and and not a lot of content. But The Freelancers Show has been pretty high on the signal-to-noise ratio, uh, and it's got a giant backlog of interesting stuff. Um, if, if you have other great, like kind of productivity or business podcasts that you, that you like, I'd love to hear recommendations as well, but those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump in here with a few. Um, if you like the freelancer show, another show that I listen to, it's definitely a different format and it's more aimed around entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, but a lot of the stuff that he, uh, he talks about in the show, uh, does apply to freelancing and having your own business. And it's the 48 days podcast by Dan Miller. Uh, if you've read 48 Days of the Work You Love, um, it's kind of a, a walkthrough on how to find a job in 48 days that's going to be one that you enjoy working in, because I think we've all been there where we've had that job that we wish we could get out of, um, and it's just it's a terrific way to go. Um, he's also got another book called No More Dreaded Mondays, and that's about striking out on your own, and it's a pretty good book too. Um, and then I'm also going to pick... Uh, at least <laughs> for the half a week that I've been doing it, we have a foreign exchange student uh, staying with us. Um, she's from Italy. I actually lived about, I, I haven't figured out the exact dates, but I'm pretty, su- I'm pretty sure I was living in Italy when she was born, and I may have been living within a half hour of her when she was born. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's been a lot of fun to have her around. Uh, she's been playing with the kids, and um, she's excited to learn English and excited to to see all the crazy stuff that we do here in America. My wife took her to the to Costco and then to Walmart, and she was looking around just wide-eyed. This place is huge. And, you know, but it's just stuff that we kind of take for granted, so it's kind of fun to see the, the United States from a different point of view. And uh, so, yeah, so if you're looking into uh, getting a foreign exchange student, um, the person who kind of got me and my family to the point where we were going to have one was actually Joe's wife. 
So, uh, bug Joe and he can hook you up, I guess. But uh, anyway, it's been super fun Thanks. so far. Yeah. Wait, did, did you imply that you might be related? No, <laughs> no. I, I was a missionary in Italy for two years. Okay. And I was there. Oh, but no, no relation. Okay. Oh, All right. Azat, what are your picks? Okay. So I'll do a shameless plug and promote my uh, new platform for free online education related to Node.js and JavaScript. So basically, uh, people are distracted if they watch YouTube videos. And uh, Udemy, it's also not the best experience uh, to, to do online courses. So I decided to just basically open source um, all my online courses and provide them for free. And uh, you can go to node.university without.com. So node.university. And uh, you will find my online courses there. In terms of other uh, JavaScript and Node-related things, ABM is doing uh, nice things where you can apply for a badge and uh, you can put it on your LinkedIn, you can put it on your website. So basically, if you Google IBM Node badges, you'll probably find it. And uh, they have different badges for uh, Node contributors and for Node evangelists. I got, uh, I got three badges, I think, for contributor and evangelist. And the last pick, uh, non-technical related, uh, basically I'm learning Spanish and I'm using this cool app. It's called Duolingo. It's from the same people who created ReCapture. Basically, uh, it's, it's really nice. Uh, it's a nicely done app and it teaches you a new language if you want to pick up Spanish or French or Italian. Or maybe JavaScript. I don't know if they have JavaScript. They should. There you go. Have it just switch your whole interface on your iPhone over to JavaScript. <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, if people want to follow you on Twitter or check in on anything else you're working on, are there any other links that we should share? Uh, if they just Google my name, A-Z-A-T, Azad, I'll be probably on the first page, kind of dominate that search term. Uh, on Twitter, A-Z-A-T. <laughs> you got great, great <laughs> SEO for that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, on Twitter, azat underscore co, azat underscore co. So, but if they go to azat.co, co without the M, uh, that's my like main website. All right, very cool. Well, thank you for coming. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll catch you all next week. Thank you. Bye. Later. Bye bye.